Saul is now in a panic state of desperation, at his wit's end, beside himself in fear and trembling. And as a result, he seeks that one thing that would seal his doom once and for all eternity. Instead of seeking the counsel of God, he seeks the counsel of witches. This is the 57th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A old covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 28, the first 11 verses. Samuel in chapter 28, the first 11 verses, 1 through 11. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Know there was surely that thou shalt go out with me to battle, thou and thy men. And David said to Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore will I make thee keeper of mine head forever. Now Samuel was dead. And all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, and two men went with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, Divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up, whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. Luke writes in Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4 through verse 12. By the same spirit that moved the prophet, so does Luke write. So they, the apostles, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius, Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, 
thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, that Samuel was dead, as the scriptures very clearly say, now Samuel was dead, and David was outside at this point in history, outside of Saul's reach with no access to God through his prophet. Saul's desperation now overflows to the point of making him almost totally insane. And in his desperation, rather than humbling himself before God in utter repentance and throwing himself on the sheer mercy of God, he blatantly violates God's commandment and seeks the witch at Endor. Now before we get too high and mighty over over Saul's sin, by seeking a familiar spirit, rather than humbling himself, we must remember that this is not so much a lesson for the saint against seeking counsel from actual witches, soothsayers, and wizards. Certainly we would, we would never do that. We would never go to a, a soothsayer or a fortune teller. Certainly that we know better. But this is not so much a lesson for us against going to soothsayers, fortune tellers, uh, palm readers, witches, or wizards, but rather it is a lesson for us not to take counsel from anyone that does not use the scripture alone as the foundation of divine direction. And this was a pivotal point for Saul in that he's finally lost all inhibition. And it is at this point where he manifests his total rebellious insanity. Saul's rebellion, as Samuel had once warned, was as of the sin of witchcraft. Notice, if you remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. It was at this point when God had totally rejected Saul from being king. Now, the reality of Saul's apostasy and reprobation is now finally and totally complete. And God's rejection of Saul as king becomes painfully evident. God was completely silent now. Saul was no longer being given access to the throne of God, no longer being given access to the counsel of the Almighty. And so instead of looking to God, humbling himself, hoping against all hope that maybe God would show some mercy... Saul feeds into his carnal lusts and commands his servants to seek for that one thing that he knew would be his final destruction. He tells them to seek for him a witch. Verse 7, And Saul said unto his servants, Seek me a witch that hath a familiar spirit, so that I may go to her and inquire of her. Since I cannot hear the voice of God, I will hear the voice of the soothsayer. Now before we give Saul an excuse as a result of his insanity, because that's what he was. By this time, he was absolutely absolutely insane. We must remember, however, that Saul knows exactly what he's doing. He needs someone to tell him what to do. Yes, he is desperate. 
But instead of mortifying his insatiable lust to know what to do in the situation he faces against the Philistines, instead of waiting upon God, instead of, instead of saying, I will do nothing because I don't know what to do, he rushes headlong into further rebellion, which seals his doom once and for all. He seeks the counsel of a witch. Now the word Saul uses to identify this woman at Endor is the Hebrew word which literally means ghost mistress. She's a ghost mistress. He identifies her as a woman who communes with the spirits of the dead, a medium, if you will, a a wicked medium, if you will. So instead of looking to the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, Saul looks to a human mediator, a ghost mistress. Now, of course, these ghost mistresses, these witches, were perceived by the wicked, by people who were the common folk, they were perceived to be experts, experts in necromancy. And necromancy simply means communing with dead people. Saul's desire to seek after her for counsel was a direct violation of God's law. What Saul did was to violate once again the law of God. He didn't understand that any counsel from a witch, a medium, any counsel from the dead, if, if she was able to raise the dead and speak to the dead, that that counsel from the dead only could lead to death. Those who are dead in sins and trespasses can only lead to counsel which leads to sin and trespasses. Secular anti-Christian counsel only leads to secular anti-Christian counsel. You cannot get godly counsel from anti-Christian sources. You can't go to Oprah. You can't ask Dr. Phil. You can't seek the counsel of Freud or Skinner or Rogers or Pavlov. You must get counsel from God. But what Saul wanted, he didn't really want counsel from God. Since God had rejected him in his anger, I'll reject God. I'll go to the Antichrist. I'll go to the secularists. Saul really wanted to receive worldly wisdom. He was seeking to circumvent God's wisdom by seeking man's wisdom, which was in fact an act of foolishness. But as we all see, God is going to turn the tables on Saul as well as the witch. Note how Moses explains the prohibition for witchcraft in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, Moses says this, and, and Saul knew this. He was the king. He had to write out the law of God. He had to write it all out in his own handwriting. He needed his own book of the law. So he knew this. It wasn't that he was ignorant. He knew exactly what he was doing. Notice what Moses says. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through a fire or that uses divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consultant with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. It's very, very clear. The penalty for the practice of these mystical arts was death. It was a capital offense. Notice Leviticus 20, 27 and Exodus 22, 18. A man also or woman that hath a familiar spirit or that is a wizard shall surely, notice, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. It's very, very clear. Witchcraft was a capital offense 
along the same lines as premeditated murder, rape, and kidnapping. That's how egregious this sin was. But at this point, we need to ask, why? Why? Why the death penalty? Why was witchcraft, wizardry, and spiritualism a capital offense? What was its anatomy? What was its purpose? What was its history? Why a capital offense? Let's consider the definition of witchcraft. Author Peter Henning, according to his research, he says this, The term witchcraft today applies to a cult whose followers span the globe and who are bonded together in a devotion to perversion, degradation, and the undermining of personal and social standards. Perversion, degradation, and the undermining of society. Researcher and author Edward Peters adds in his book, The Magician, Witch, and the Law, says this, Although Plato was harsh in his condemnation of magicians, the laws of Greece and Rome were harsher. You think about this. The pagan laws were harsher. They contained stiff penalties for the practice of magic, especially when that magic could be proven to have caused injury or loss. Besides its alleged impiety, magic also attracted the hostility of philosophers because it appeared to conflict with the ethical character of legitimate intellectual inquiry since it was considered to be a form of aimless curiosities. Greeks and Romans were not the only people who defined, feared, and condemned magical practices, which they called magos. The Septuagint version of the Old Testament used the Greek word magos freely to condemn those magicians of Pharaoh depicted in Exodus 7-8 as well as the practice condemned at length in the legal portions of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The later Latin translation of the Bible translated magos as magos because it had come to have a similar meaning in the Roman world to its meaning in the Greek world. Again and again, in the Old Testament, Jews were warned against practicing magic or consulting magicians. Such a prohibition, however, did not stop these practices, and Greeks, Romans, Jews, and early Christians alike appeared to have persisted in consulting magicians well into the 5th and 6th century AD, probably even long after that, end quote. During the early days of Christianity, the early Christian father, Tertullian, his famous taunt, where he stated, as he is known to state, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, was taken by many Christians to include all aspects of paganism, especially witchcraft and the magical arts. Peters adds this again. He says, for Tertullian, the magician's nefarious practices, pagan consultations of oracles, and other forms of divination were all performed with the aid of demons, Early Christian demonology, early Christian demonology, at its outset, identified the magical arts with the power of the devil. End quote. Now, during this early period, Christianity was substantially bound to their Latin traditions, which were pagan and Greek and Roman, and that is what allowed for the leniency that they saw toward the magic arts. 
Tertullian had to publicly rebuke some of his own fellow Christian brethren with their ignorance of the faith, which made them prone to accept certain aspects of pagan tradition within the Christian community. That's why he said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Now between the time of 396 A.D. and 427 A.D., St. Augustine's work on the Christian doctrine clearly condemned witchcraft and magic. The early church had become so lax at that point in the condemnation of the magical arts, which obviously prompted Augustine to write against it. Even if the image of the dead, Samuel, conjured up by the witch at Endor, told the truth to King Saul, the means by which the spirit was called up, according to Augustine, were nevertheless to be condemned. Augustine comments, he says, Therefore, all arts pertaining to a trifling or noxious superstition constituted on the basis of an infectious association of men and demons as if through a pact of faithless and deceptive friendship should be completely repudiated and avoided by Christians. End quote. That's what Augustine said. Now, if we're going to put that in our modern case study, don't go to anyone that doesn't use the scripture for counsel. St. Augustine's knowledge of witchcraft and the magic arts where animals and animal spirits were regarded as deity and where those practicing the magic arts would mask themselves in animal attire brilliantly applies Romans chapter 1 to repudiate any practice of the magic arts as condemned by God as foolishness and those practicing it as having a darkened heart. Notice what his commentary says in his commentary on Christian doctrine, his treatise. He says this, quote, Every good and true Christian should understand that whenever he may find truth, it is his Lord's. And confessing and acknowledging this truth also in the sacred writings, he will repudiate superstitions, imaginations, and will deplore and guard against men who, when they knew God, have not glorified him as God or given him thanks, but became vain in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. For professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of the image of a corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed beasts, and of creeping things. So you think about that. Within the first 300 years after the crucifixion, and after the resurrection, and after Pentecost, when Christianity was exploding on the scene, the magic arts were a common thing for Christians. Augustine doubles down on this condemnation in his work, The City of God, in books 10, 18, and 19, where he says this, Not by spells and charms composed according to the rules of criminal superstition, the craft which is called magic or sorcery, a detestable name, or by the more honorable title of harmless superstition persuasion. For people attempt to make some sort of a distinction between practices of evil arts who are to be condemned, classing these as sorcerers, the popular name for which is necromancy, and others whom they are prepared to regard as praiseworthy, attributing to them the practice of spiritual persuasion. In fact, both types are engaged in the fraudulent rites of demons wrongly called angels. So you might say, well, you know, if I listen to the Council of Oprah, It's not so bad. She's not practicing demonology. If I go to Dr. Phil, Augustine would say, no. The scriptures alone, God alone. But why was witchcraft a capital offense? 
Well, simply put, it is an effort by man to control the universe and the outcome of events through incantations and pagan ceremonies in an attempt to be as God. And that is the same sinful act of Adam which condemned the entire human race and the universe itself. He wanted to be as God. Aided to this, the witch is viewed as the all-knowing ancient wise one. Henning explains, he says, its modern title of witchcraft is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word wicker, which means the wise one or magician who weakens the power of evil. In the craft, a single supreme deity is recognized, the mother goddess, who has a variety of names, but is usually referred to by modern practitioners as the guardian of the witches. The deity is usually represented as having three faces, the maid, the mother, and the wise ancient. And so, witchcraft is when someone goes to a witch, they are seeking wisdom. Not from the book of wisdom, but from the secularists who have the wisdom of the world which God says it is foolishness. And so the Wiccans are considered to be the all-wise ones. This is why Saul sought the counsel of the witch. He needed wisdom that he was not getting from God. God was already judging him, but he wanted wisdom. No matter what kind of wisdom, he just needed that wisdom. And since he was barred from the wisdom of God, he resorted to his reprobate nature by seeking wisdom from a witch. And that's what people who seek wisdom from witches are. They're reprobates. But as Paul rightly tells the church at Rome, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now while Saul's actual sin was seeking after the witch and then actually going to her for counsel, his initial sin was actually allowing her to remain close by in the land of Israel. God, through Moses, had already told Israel that those practicing the magical arts of witchcraft and necromancy were to be removed out of the land entirely, and if possible, even as far from Israel's borders, so that they could never be found again. Yet Endor was only 10 miles away, 10 miles from Saul's own encampment. Today, we can get there by vehicle in less than 10 minutes. Joshua sadly was unsuccessful in driving out Endor and the surrounding cities. And so by the time of Saul, these cities had remained. Saul should have completed what Joshua didn't, and yet he did not. And although he commanded all the witches to be removed out of the land under the penalty of death, it seems that just outside, just outside the boundaries of Israel, some remained. Well, keep them close, not too close but we want to keep them close. It also seems, even though Saul had decreed all witches to be removed from Israel, as if Saul knew of the witch at Endor. Perhaps he might have even had her in mind as a last resort if things really got bad enough. Now that things looked grim, he pulled out his ace in the hole, the witch at Endor. And so by commandment, Saul banishes the witches, but in reality, they are to be remaining very close by. Ten miles And in this way, Saul, again, shows himself a hypocrite in addition to all of his other offenses. And that's how hypocrisy works. You know, while we condemn the sin that so easily besets us, we seem to keep it close by instead of hunting it down and killing it completely. We just want to keep it close enough, whatever sin that is, in case we need it in a pinch. 
Saul kept the witches far enough to make a show, a fair show of his piety, that he was obedient. But he kept them close enough so that if he ever really needed them in a pinch, they would be available. And that's what we do with sin. We don't want to kill it. We don't want to get it far enough away that we can never get it again or deal with it again. We want to get it just so far away so that if we need it, it's there. That's what Christians, too many Christians do. They keep their pet sins far enough so as they look holy, but close enough so that if they ever feel the pinch when the lust and the old Adam rises up, they can fulfill their passion in violation of the law of God. And in this, they refuse to kill completely the sin that so easily besets them. That's being like Saul. And so, in Saul's rebellious desperation, he goes to the witch in clear violation of God's word. Now the question we'll have to raise at this point is what makes a man rebel so blatantly full well knowing that his action is a violation of the law of God, even a capital offense? What what was this man all about? What did he what was he thinking? Well consider some possibilities, several possibilities. Firstly, Saul was unregenerate. He was not regenerate. Because An unregenerate man will always disregard the commandments of the Lord and do whatever his soul desires. And for this type of man, the fear of God is not before his eyes. He actually doesn't believe that his sin will lead him to hell. And so he goes headlong into it. And in his mind, he justifies himself. Or at least he desensitizes himself to what he is doing. Furthermore, this unregenerate man is void of any union and communion with God through Jesus Christ and therefore he has no access to God through the mediator. And it is this union and communion with the Lord that keeps men on the path of piety, purity and obedience. So I implore you, do not leave off your communion with God. Secondly, this type of a man, Saul himself, is a professor of religion. He was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the king of Israel. Yet he disregarded the commandments of the Lord. Just because you say you're a Christian, just because you say you love Jesus, and you disregard the commandments of the Lord, you are a hypocrite. Many men say that they're religious. In fact, every man is in some way, shape, or form religious. And yet these men of religion act as if they are guided by nothing more than their own intuition, their fancies, their habits, their natural philosophies, or the culture in which they live. And for these professors of some religion, their natural mind is their standard. Not the revelation of God, but their natural mind. Third point. The next category of rebels is the professor of the Christian religion and yet removed from strict obedience. These individuals cloak their rebellion by appealing to what drives me nuts is their sanctified common sense. Common sense is not very common. And certainly there is no such thing as sanctified common sense. There's either the revelation of God or man's idea of what is right and wrong. I would place Saul in each of these categories, each of these groups, but especially in this one. Saul was a man who knew the commandments of God. He understood at least intellectually what God required, and yet he neglected the word of God's commandment. 
rather than repenting as forgiveness when an error soul acted according to his own sanctified common sense, his own intuition, and he made excuses, justifying himself for his sin and rebellion, never owning it, worried about how he would look before his people, never asking for mercy, never asking for forgiveness, at least not really. At the beginning of his reign, Saul might have shown some glimmer of piety and conscience, but as we've seen, as time progressed, and his evil heart began to take over, he left off all piety, and he became hardened in his conscience, because he was never really rooted and grounded in Christ. True piety is an expression of humility before God, while living with an eye focused, a single focus upon God and his glory. But Saul was not that man. Even though Saul had to read the law and then write it out in his own hand, it did him little good since he read it without any understanding. Calvin says this, he says, The goal of the Christian life is piety. It is not merely knowledge, but an understanding of the gospel that impacts the will and in turn transforms the lives. The gospel, when it is true, it transforms the life of that individual. Saul's transformation should have been evident, but it was not. In fact, everything he did testified of his reprobation. While he was looked at as one who believed God, his actions spoke otherwise, in that not only didn't he obey God, but he didn't even believe God. For truth is only rightly believed to the extent that it is embodied in one's life. You can say, I love Jesus, I I believe God, I have faith, but if you're not acting according to God's word, then your faith is vain. Saul's transformation had to be evident in actionable obedience, and it was not. Saul's insistence on going to the witch at Endor shows how far, just how far, he had been removed from God. For if the most useful Christian life is the one lived most near to God, Saul's life became useless as a result of his departure from God. The true Christian life is a manifestation of a transformed life. And these lessons are for us today. So the questions then, practically speaking, is how near to God do we live each and every day? Drawing near to God takes time, patience, sacrifice, sacrificing worldly desires, but it's only perfected and matured through service, through the actual application of the Word of God. It takes deliberate planning, it takes deliberate scheduling, a scheduled time to read, to study, to meditate, a scheduled time to pray, and a scheduled time to serve. But that takes a deliberate Desire. We have to schedule it into our lives because we're so whimsical in everything we do. Serious Christians are always, if you're a serious Christian, you should always be seeking to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and with His Spirit-led conviction, make the time to do everything that God has called you to do and then put all of that learning as you're praying, as you're meditating, as you're reading, as you're studying, then you put all of that learning into action. Calvin encourages the saint to recognize the brevity of life and the enormity, the enormous length of eternity. You think about it. 70 years, 80 years, 100 years, 120 years. 
It doesn't really matter. It's over in a heartbeat. But the length of eternity? Sinclair Ferguson recounts this. He says, when Calvin was seriously ill, you think about, you think about this man. When Calvin was seriously ill and confined to bed, his friends urged him to take some rest. But he replied, Would you that the Lord, when he comes, should find me idle? By living in the light of the return of Christ and the coming judgment, Calvin became deeply conscious of the brevity of time and the length of eternity. This sense of eternity overflowed from his life into his work. It was so characteristic of him that it flowed out naturally in his prayers at the conclusion of his lectures. Saul lost all sense of eternity. He lost all sense of the severity of God's law that he was willing to forfeit both his life and his eternal destiny to a reprobate woman who is also destined to the punishment of hell and damnation. He goes to a witch. Now, apostasy is contagious. But Saul was not the only culprit in this historical event. Saul was not the only culprit in this historical event. Consider the apostasy of his servants, his army. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. Find me a woman. Oh, I know one. Now, there are a number of things that we might infer from this response. Firstly, these men, if they cared anything about the king, if they cared anything for their own king, they should have immediately said to Saul, this is a really bad idea. I hope that if I ever fall into a state of Saul and I sought to sin, that someone would say to me, this is a really bad idea. But no one said a thing. No one told him it was a bad idea. They simply told where they could find the witch. They simply told Saul where they can find the witch. Secondly, these men, being Hebrews, had to know of the danger of seeking after wizards and those witches that peep and mutter and who are wicked and vile in the sight of God. And this seems to indicate that they were also compromised as to their allegiance to the law of God. Saul's apostasy was obviously contagious. Because evil company does indeed corrupt good manners. You stay long enough in the company of evil men, you will become an evil man. Thirdly, it also seems very likely that since we are not told that these servants first inquired as to where they would find the ghost mistress, but were almost immediately able to tell Saul where to find one upon his request. Now we might assume then that they might have sought her counsel as well in the past. It's almost as if you were asked, where is a bordello? Where is a house of ill repute? Or or where can I find the best pornographic site on the World Wide Web? Where could those things be located? Or where can I find the best drug dealer? And the answer comes back immediately, I I know one. (laughs) I can tell you where it is. I'll give you the address, phone number. It's as if they said to Saul, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that place. I know that person. Since I too have taken liberties with her as well in the past. They knew right away where she was. She might have been a counselor to many of Saul's men in the past, which brought them to the point of never questioning the insanity of the reprobate king, because they too were out of their mind. 
And so upon Saul's request, instead of warning him, they lead him as a lamb to the slaughter. They oblige him. Verse 8. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment. And he went, two men with him. They came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. Now note a few things here. First, Saul disguises himself before he goes to the witch. Now certainly, this is not because he's ashamed. He had already asked his entire armed force where to find the witch. So he was, he was not trying to hide from this, at least certainly not his men. So why disguise himself? If not for his men, then who? Well, perhaps the witch. Saul did not want the witch to recognize him because if she saw Saul approaching, the same one that had banned her and said that if they found her, they'd kill her, if she saw him approaching, she might have hidden herself or fled knowing that Saul had banned witchcraft. She would not have been able to give the king what he wanted. She would never have been able to Pease Saul's lusts. And Saul, as his custom was of deception and deceit, seeks to deceive the witch by disguising himself. Secondly, Saul not only disguises himself, but he goes to the woman under the cloak of darkness in order to be very sure that she does not recognize him. So, in the darkness, with the cloak, with the disguise, he goes to the witch. Now, these are all very practical reasons. But I believe there's something more. The reason why Saul is doing this, under the cloak of darkness, disguising himself, I believe there's something deeper that Saul is trying to secure other than deceiving the witch. I believe he's trying to deceive God. He's trying to hide from God. Perhaps if he goes under the cover of night, perhaps if he disguises himself, God might not notice. This might be the case. Since that is what the wicked do, they cover themselves with darkness. Solomon tells us that the sinful man begins in vanity and departs in darkness, so that in the end his name is covered with darkness. In Ecclesiastes 6.4 For he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. But I believe that there is another interesting nuance to this, this meeting, cloaked in darkness, disguised. Saul brings two other men with him, making the audience with the witch three. Now, could Saul be trying to also not only hide from God, but to the witch impersonate God? You see, because God had often manifest himself in what is called a theophany, where the Trinity is clearly shown. Both Abraham and Lot had witnessed this. Another possibility is that Saul brought these men to bear witness of what could come to pass out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word is established. So whatever the reason, because he's going to tell the witch, everything is okay, so if it comes from Saul or from God, the witch would then feel okay about it. Whatever the reason behind Saul's action, he was about to unveil his own destruction. He then commands the witch. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me up him whom I shall name unto thee. Now what is really interesting here is this woman shows more concern for the law of God, or at least the consequences for violating the law of God, than Saul does. 
And here the witch acts as a sharp opposite to Saul, showing so much more integrity than the usurper king of Israel. And the woman said unto him, verse 9, Behold, thou knowest what Saul had done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? She was very concerned. Saul wasn't concerned. She was concerned. Saul then assures her that no harm will come to her. In verse 10, And Saul sware to her by the Lord, by the name of Yahweh, saying, As Yahweh liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Now is the moment of truth. And so the woman asks. She asks Saul. Then the woman said, verse 11, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. We shall continue with the tragic end of Saul next when we continue in our exposition on the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.